Good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, back to School of the Word. Glad to be back with you. I was out of town last week, so it's been a little bit since I've been in this room, but um, hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Um, and I am, I did as well, despite all of my gallivanting all around the state of Florida um, to see my in-laws. Um, and I'm excited this morning to start our study of the book of Hosea. Um, and this is really going to be, I'll just say at the beginning, an overview of Hosea. We're going to go through it. It's going to probably feel like very fast. Um, I think we're going to get through the whole book in about three weeks is, is kind of the plan. So that's 14 chapters um, in case you're trying to count in your head. Um, so it, it might feel like, and you can look at your notes and see that I'm just throwing a lot of information at you, um, and that's true, but at the same time, we're probably just skimming the surface. Um, so, but, but my goal for this study is, is not that you'd walk away feeling like you're necessarily an expert on Hosea or have gotten in all of the details. I don't think I am an expert on Hosea. Um, but, but my goal is that the next time you run into this book in your year through the Bible plan or, or just studying it with um, with friends, or whenever you read this again on your own, that you will feel just a little more equipped, a little more oriented for how to read this book, for um, how to dig into it yourself, kind of what's going on, what the setting is, and, and some of the major themes that are coming out of this book. So that's the goal of this overview. Um, and, and I think anytime we approach really any book in the Bible, but especially a book like Hosea, uh, it's helpful to, to kind of think about what are we supposed to do with this book? When you open this on, on Tuesday morning, what do you do with it? And, and I think in that, it's helpful to kind of pull apart a couple ideas or a couple of concepts. Because, because Hosea, and, and really every book in the Bible, while they are written for us, right, the Holy Spirit put these books in a, a combined book, the Bible, for us to read. At the same time, this book was not written to you. Do, do you see what I'm saying? It, say, for example... Um, my my great grandfather wrote a series of letters to who would would ultimately become my great grandmother. A series of love letters. Um, I've never read these, but but we still have them. I think my aunt has them. My mom has told me about them. And so so imagine if my mom took those letters and, and combined them into a into a book or a notebook, and and maybe put a little introduction on what the context and what was going on with these, and then she put all that together and she gives it to me to read. Right, that, that's written, she's giving that for me to read, but they weren't written to me. Right, if I'm going to understand what's going on in this book she's given me, I need to understand first sort of what's, what's going on in the letters. Who wrote them? Who did they write them to? What was happening at the time? What was the outcome of these letters? What's the story going on in the immediate context? And then I probably need to understand too, why did my mom put them together for me to read? What was her intention? Does she want me to understand something about my family, something about love? Is this uh, uh, something to model or something to avoid, right? What, what is the point? Why does she want me to read this? And then I'll understand what am I supposed to do with these letters, with this book she's put together. I think it's the same thing. When we come to a book in the Bible, we need to understand first the immediate context of the letter. What's happening? When was this written? Where does this fit? What, what, who are the players? Who is Hosea? Who is he writing to? What's happening in the story? 
then we need to understand how does this fit into the overall Bible? Why does this book sit along the 65 other books in God's word? What, how does it serve the larger narrative and fit into the story of what God is doing with his people? And only then will we really understand what are we supposed to do with this letter? Why does the Holy Spirit intend for a letter written by a prophet in the 8th century BC to a context that's totally different than ours? Why does he intend for us to read that today, right? And, and, and I don't think you have to necessarily go through those steps in order every time you read or, or do those. You're probably doing those kind of at the same time. Um, you, you're, you're understanding the context in context of the Bible as you're having thoughts about how it applies to you. You're probably doing them all at the same time, but I think it's helpful to think about them a little bit separately to really understand a book, especially a book as far removed from our context as something like Hosea. So that's what, kind of how I want to walk through this first three chapters this morning. First, look at the immediate context. What do we see in the text? What's happening in this book? Then spend a little time locating that in the larger story of the Bible. And then finally consider at the end, how does this apply to us? What are we supposed to make and take from this book? So let's jump in. Um, Hosea 1, chapter 1. We're going to go... I'm going to try to go through this quickly. I have a lot in these notes. Um, I might use my whole time this morning. We'll see. Um, But the first verse of Hosea, um, as most of the prophets orients us in the time when this is happening by giving us the list of the kings who were were ruling during when this letter was written. So verse 1 tells us, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, if you read this letter, there's four kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. Remember, this is after the split. So there's the southern kingdom of Judah. There's four of those kings listed, one king of the northern kingdom of Israel listed. But actually, this letter is written primarily to the northern kingdom. Um, as you read through it, it's going to reference Isaiah. It, it mentions Judah once or twice, but primarily this is being written to Jeroboam and the king of Israel in the northern kingdom um, in the 8th century. And so who is Jeroboam would be a good question. You start here, and if you go read the account of him in Second Kings 14, you, you find it's not all negative. Right? The summary of him, as, as every king in, northern, in the northern kingdom of Israel is, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the summary is bad, but you also get this in 2 Kings 14, 26 and 27. It says, The Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. So, so while he is evil, God also uses him to save the kingdom. So there's something of a dichotomy going on here. And, and the prophets like Hosea and also Amos, who is speaking at the same time, help us to understand why is that. Right? On the one hand, 2 Kings tells us that, that there's military victory during this time. Jeroboam leads them again in a war against the kingdom of Syria, and they reconquer the land of Damascus. And so there's sort of this conquest and victory and an expansionary period for the northern kingdom. And also Hosea and Amos are telling us that at the same time, this nation is full of corruption. Specifically, it's full of idolatry and pursuing false gods, specifically the false god of Baal. 
And so at the same time that there's this seeming growth and expansion, Hosea is warning like, like a smoke alarm blaring in the middle of the night. There's a problem here. He's going to use really harsh sort of shocking imagery and language to say, don't get comfortable. Don't look at just the military status you have right now. And the military was not all good either. There's these larger nations of Assyria and Egypt we're going to read about as well. They have some threats as well, but he's saying the real problem is this nation is full of idolatry. And because of that, judgment is coming. If you read ahead and see what happens, Jeroboam's son only reigns as king for six months before he is murdered in a conspiracy. And over the next 25 years, they'll go through, Israel will go through six kings, most of whom are also murdered. Assyria is going to invade twice, and the second time, at the end of 25 years, the nation is going to be totally destroyed, and Assyria will resettle the land with totally different people. So after 25 years, after Jeroboam's reign, the northern nation of Israel is entirely vanished, never to return as it was. If if you remember, we did the study of Micah last year. Um, and, and Micah is writing at the end of this downfall of Israel. So he's looking back on what has happened in Israel, and he's now looking at the southern kingdom and saying, you saw what just happened to Israel, Judah, you may be next. Um, just to help orient with what we also have been studying. But, but they become a cautionary tale for the, northern, for the southern kingdom. And so what is it? That's what we're going to think we need to be looking for. What is it that Hosea is warning about, and how does he describe the problems in the nation? So we go on in chapters, verses 2 through 9. Hosea starts off with, with an illustration, really, a very uh, tangible, real, um, and, and, and real-life object example to help understand what is happening in the kingdom. Hosea's family is going to be used as a picture of how God relates to this kingdom. And as you're going to see in this very first verse, uh, verse 2, there's two things going on at the same time throughout this whole section, chapters 1 through 3. We're seeing both events happening in Hosea's family, and we're also understanding that that picture is being applied as an illustration of the kingdom of Israel. And if you, you need to see both of those at the same time, to, if you've heard anything of Hosea outside of this study, you, you've probably picked up on the story of him and his wife, Gomer. And, and there's all sorts of children's book illustrations about sort of imagining, filling out what that story might have been like, who Gomer was, and, and what her story, what her backstory is, how she feels about it. There's going to be very few of those details actually given. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but you need to see that picture, not only what's happening in Hosea's family, but understanding that that story is primarily an illustration of how God is relating to Israel. So let's read, starting in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. If you're reading other versions, it might say a wife of promiscuity. It's really an adjective describing this woman. For... The land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, 
For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, Not My People, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Okay, so what do we see in this illustration? What what do we see happening in, in Hosea's family? Where we're told, he's told to go marry a wife of whoredom. And as I said, there's lots of speculation around who Gomer was and, and what exactly she did. I read three commentaries on this, and they had at least two different ideas and mentioned the third one. Right, was she a prostitute before, or did she commit adultery during it? Or is that not even the case, and she's just an idolatrous woman like the whole nation? And, and I, I can see the speculation on that. The, the reality is we don't know. It doesn't give us a lot of details about Gomer. Some people speculate about her name. It's just not very clear exactly who she was or what she did. We're going to reference Hosea's wife again in chapter 3, and there's even a debate on whether that's the same woman as in chapter 1, or whether that's actually a different event or the same event. Again, it's just not that clear. The details aren't here, and that's okay. Because you don't really need the details. You don't need to know who Gomer was or exactly what she did to get the picture that Hosea is trying to show us. I tell you that he says a wife of whoredom as an illustration of Israel's unfaithfulness. You have an image coming to your mind, right? It's sort of like a, you can think of nursery rhymes, right? You get very little details about these pictures. Old King Cole was a merry old soul, a merry old soul was he. What do I know about old King Cole? Basically nothing, right? (laughs) But you've got a picture in your mind, right? You can imagine a king who maybe enjoys drink or maybe he likes feasting or maybe he's a silly person or you've got some picture, an image in your head that you're able to use and I could now take that and illustrate something else. I don't know what I would illustrate with old King Cole, but I think that's essentially what's happening with Gomer here. We're given just enough information, just enough inference to have a picture in our mind so that when he says, this is what my, my people are like. You get what he's talking about. There is, a, there is unfaithfulness here. And it's like the unfaithfulness of adultery in a marriage. You can see that. You can feel that. And the weight of that is going to carry through the rest of this book. The other thing we notice here is, is pictures of his children, whose names are really accusations against the people of Israel. So what do we see in these names? The first one... Uh, probably takes the most work. The first one's called Jezreel. So the question is, where's Jezreel? What is that? It's, it's most likely, um, because of the reference to Jehu, a, a reference to 2 Kings 9, where um, Jeroboam's great-grandfather becomes king by killing the previous king and his wife. Um, this is during, Elisha actually commissions Jehu to go and kill Ahab and Jezebel, and, and that Jezebel. Um, and because of their great wickedness, their great idolatry, they're some of the worst kings, king and queen in the, nation, in the nation's history. 
and their death is very bloody. It's a very, it, it says that Jezebel's blood runs in the streets and the dogs lick it up. It's a very bloody picture, right? And they would have known that story in this day, right? Your great-grandfather starts your kingdom in this great bloody moment in the city of Jezreel. I forgot to mention that, but it happens in Jezreel. And so when they say, I'm going to punish Jehu for the blood in Jezreel, it, it, it's probably not actually an accusation for that murder, right? Because Elisha the prophet actually tells Jehu to do it. So it, it's not necessarily saying you shouldn't have done that. But I think what it's saying is you remember this bloody moment that started your kingdom. Now it's your turn. That bloody overthrow, that destructive moment, it's coming for this nation again. So it's a warning of coming bloodshed and destruction. And then the next daughter's name is No Mercy. Right? I have a friend who just had a, had a daughter, and they named her Mercy. Right? And, and you can't think of her name without thinking of, of the gospel, of the story of God's mercy on his people, the way he has loved us in Christ. And, and it's just all contained in her name, and, and you see her and you remember that delight. Well, imagine the opposite picture of that. Right? This girl's name is No Mercy. And you see her name and you remember the judgment is coming and cannot be avoided. And the final child's name is not my people. Again, people reading this sort of in the speculative around, is this even actually Hosea's son, right? The, the first one says she bore to Hosea and the next two just say she had another kid. So is, is that sort of implying that maybe these aren't even Hosea's children? They're products of the adultery. Again, we don't know. It, it doesn't, it's not clear. But it is clear. Imagine you have your youngest kid, and every time you see him, you say, not mine. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine saying, I'm going to treat this child of mine as if he is not. God is saying, that's how I relate to you Israelites who are supposed to be my people. It's worse than even just, I don't know you. You're some sort of stranger. This is to your child. These are the people who are supposed to be God's people. There's supposed to be an intimate relationship here, and it's been ruptured to the point where God looks at them and says, not mine. Right? You don't need to know the details of Hosea's actually family to get this picture. This is personal. This is relational, and this is devastating. It's a tangible illustration you can imagine, you can speculate what Hosea's family life might have been like, the brokenness and the dysfunction and the disorder and the hurt and the brokenness. And that's what God's people are like before him at this point. But then verse 10, brace yourselves. We are about to whiplash to a different tone. And this is going to be a theme of Hosea. He does this about three times. Just where all of a sudden the judgment is abruptly and without explanation replaced by pictures of reconciliation. Verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, 
and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now, you're reading through this on Tuesday morning, and it, you, it could be confusing, right? I thought we were just talking about this dark picture of rejection, and now it sounds like that's not happening. Now there's going to be reconciliation. What's going on here? Uh, well, I'm mean, a couple things to note. Again, this is just another reminder that this is really a picture of God's people. It's really clear in here that all of the curses on Hosea's family are going to be reversed in the people of Israel because that's the main thing that we're talking about. And, and you see they're specifically reversed. The day of Jezreel is no longer a day of bloodshed and destruction. It's going to be a great day. We're not told why. A little more on that maybe comes later, but, um, but just enough to see it's reversed. Those who are not my people are my people. Those who have not received mercy will receive mercy. And, and we'll see. He's going to go right back to judgment after this. So I don't think this is saying that, that God's deciding, am I going to judge them or not? There's a, there's a time here, right? And be on the other side of judgment, we'll see, are when these moments occur. But I do think this sort of whiplash, this abrupt return to reconciliation is something we should notice. It's a feature of Hosea. He does it here in chapter 1. He's going to do it again at the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. He does it kind of again in Hosea 11 and Hosea 14. It turns with no explanation, no transition. Just all of a sudden, I've been describing the coming judgment, and now I'm describing reconciliation. We should pay attention to the way that comes, and we'll think more about that before today's over. And then we go right back. As I said, that just because reconciliation is coming does not mean that the judgment is going to be avoided. God, Hosea, again, speaking, using the illustration of his family, speaking in the voice of a father to the children of an adulterous mother. God describes the judgment on Israel. It's the first sort of like, longer explanation of why God is judging his people. Starting in chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore, and she, has con- she who conceived them has acted shamefully." For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. It's almost awkward to read that in a room full of people. <laughs> right? The, the personalness, the uh, wrongness, the difficulty of this moment, it's so clear. You see how this illustration can carry so much weight. This isn't just God saying, I'm going to judge and exile my people for their sin. Right? That's bad. But this illustration carries more with it than I could in a simple explanation. And in verse 8, we go on to see that this is clearly a picture of God's judgment on Israel's idolatry. Pick it up in verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, 
her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, on which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and abandoned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after me and forgot me, declares the Lord. Again, whether this is a parallel to what's happening in Hosea's family or not, again, not clear. Maybe this is something like what he said to his wife. Maybe not. It doesn't matter. The point is, this is how God relates to his people. He is rejecting them because they have forgotten that he's the one that provided all the good things. If you know anything about Baal, the god that they're accused of worshiping here, he's, he's a fertility god. Right, So he was the one responsible for the prosperity of a land. Not only fertility and childbearing, but probably even more in, in the crops. In things like wine, oil, um, the, the, the uh, fig trees, and the, the cattle, and all of those things. And, and what this accusation is saying is, you forgot God gave you those things. You took the produce of your land and you sacrificed it to Baal. You think that's the one who has given you. You go after this God as if he is your husband, as if he is the one that's provided for you. You've forgotten God. And so what is he going to do? I'm going to take all of those things. The picture of nakedness and stripping is, is sort of like a picture of famine, right? All the, the linen crops, I think the flax you would use to make clothes, um, and the, the food and the produce, all of that's going to be taken away from you because you forgot where it came from. That's what his abandoning is going to look like. And this, this personification, this carries so much more than just a simple accusation. Imagine, we use the idea of Lady Liberty um, to describe America. And you can put more into that illustration than simply the idea of a nation. Right? When, when you think of Lady Liberty, you can think of the beauty of a country or the desire to defend or to honor a country just in a different way, in a way that carries more weight, that, that means more to us. That's exactly what God is doing here with the picture sort of of, of Lady Israel. Again, the, the betrayal, the hurt, the, the devastation of this broken relationship is clear when it's personified. And that's how God relates to his people, not just as uh, servants, not just as people who um, have signed a covenant. It's not just a contract. This was a relationship that is broken. And so he's using relational language to help explain what is happening and how he feels about his people in this moment. And then again, we get another whiplash to reconciliation. A turn here again, just one verse from I will destroy her to verse 14. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And then we do get in chapter 3 a parallel reconciliation of Hosea and his 
wife. And we do get a few details about what's actually happening in this relationship. Again, applied to the situation of God and his people. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So many things in this I'm not going to chase down. Um, but, but I think what we see here is the illustration of Hosea and his wife is expanded here. Say, not only is the brokenness of God's people like, like the brokenness of, a, of an unfaithfulness in a family, but the restoration is going to be like restoration after a period of brokenness. And it's going to have cost, and it's going to take time, but it's going to be a restoration of that relationship. And so we see a few things here that, that one, that the fact that this restoration is coming here clearly does not mean the judgment won't come. God says that he will allure her, in chapter 2, in the wilderness. So it's not that she's not going into the wilderness, but in her wilderness, in her exile, God will come and find restoration there. This restoration we see is going to have cost, just as Hosea has to pay to get this woman back. And we don't know exactly what's happening or what her life has brought her to, that, that payment is required for restoration. But we do see it costs something. And then that restoration is not immediately restored. Right? She comes home and, and there's conditions around how she's going to live in this house now. It seems that not only does she have to give up her adulterous life, but there's going to be some sort of, of distance between her and Hosea for a period of time. Not a lot of details, don't know exactly what that's like, but, but when you look ahead and see how God relates to his people returned from exile, you see that return didn't restore them back to this perfect picture of what things, how things used to be. Right? There was continued brokenness, continued disorder. They've sort of lost and forgotten the law, and it takes them time to recover that and begin to even try to live under that law again. So this restoration is messy. It's not simple. It's costly. And yet what I think we see is that God determines it will happen. So this is what's happening in the immediate context. What do we see in this connection with the larger biblical context? Well, the, the easiest thing to do is to jump forward and to see the picture of God's restoration of Israel and Hosea's restoration of his wife as Christ's restoration of us. But I'm going to save that. We're going to do that more another week. I think what was really helpful for me in understanding this was recognizing that what Hosea is illustrating in this story is really just the covenant promises of God's people all the way back given in Deuteronomy. So if you read Deuteronomy 28, the promises of blessing or curse based on the faithfulness of his people are the basis for which Hosea says judgment is coming. This is at Deuteronomy 28, if you remember, this is given by Moses in, in, just before they go into the promised land where he's recounting for them their story, recounting for them the covenant they've 
promised to follow, and then saying at the end, chapter 28, verse 1, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. But then in verse 15 through 19, skipping around a little bit, it says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandment and statutes, Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. All the judgments Hosea is giving are just fulfillments of what the conditions of the covenant always have been. He's not adding anything here. He's just illustrating what was already promised. And that illustration includes the reconciliation. Deuteronomy goes on in chapter 30, verses 1 to 3. It says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. When I come to Hosea and just read it on its own, it sounds like God is making a decision in this point, right? saying, I've had it, this is enough, here's what we're doing now. And it, it sort of feels like maybe the way I respond to my children when, when they they've, won't sit still at a table at a restaurant or they're doing something that's bothering me, and I'm like, all right, here's what it is. And it's the first time I'm telling them, this is a new rule for you that you have to follow. <laughs> but that's not what God is doing here. In Hosea, God is saying, this has been the condition all along. You knew this was the rule. You knew this was what I would do. You have broken my covenant and the curses that I promised to you generations ago are coming on you now. And also he's saying, the reconciliation I said could happen back then, that's going to happen too. The illustration in Hosea is just an illustration of the covenant promises God has given all the way back in Deuteronomy. I would note with one difference. You notice the condition in Deuteronomy is that when you repent and return back to the Lord, he will restore you. What's missing from Hosea? There is no condition. There is no mention of the people turning and coming back to the Lord. That doesn't mean that doesn't happen or that's not part of what actually that will look like. But, but what he's saying here is, I promise this will happen. It's, it's sort of like this. If in the middle of a, of a difficult marriage, difficult relationship, maybe parties are separated, a husband looks at his wife and says, I promise we will make it through this. I promise. It's on me. This is the reason reconciliation is coming. Yes, maybe your repentance will be part of that. That's what it will look like. But the promise of it, the payment of it, the condition is only on me. The Lord's reconciliation comes when he goes and allures his wife again. So what do we do with this, Hosea? When, when you read this in your reading plan, we're not Israel, right? We're not Hosea. We're not Gomer. This is a very different context. Hopefully you don't have idols at home. That's why you're here this morning. Right? You're not full through with Baal worship. Even if you're in the midst of, of marital difficulties, I don't recommend Hosea for your counseling sessions. This is not good 
marriage advice. Um, don't call your children not mine. It's not a good idea. What do we do with this? What do we take from this story? Right, well, while this story is different, while we are not in the same context, we're not in the same land, the God to whom we relate is the same God who relates to his people in Hosea. So what we learn from Hosea is what is God like? And specifically, what is God like when he relates to people who are unfaithful and relationships that are messy? Right? God knew from Deuteronomy that this was coming. This was no surprise to him. Right? He wrote out this covenant, said, agree with this, do this, and this will happen. Don't do this, and this will happen. And when you don't do this... This is what will happen next, right? He knew that was coming generations before he got to this point, and he still brought those people into the land. He did not avoid that difficulty or that messy relationship. There's another reference over in Hosea 12 where, where Hosea reminds them of their, of their namesake, the man whose name was Jacob and became Israel, it's a bit of a, a, a complicated reference, but let, let me read it and then unpack it a little bit here. It says, Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4. It says, In the womb he took his brother by the heel. That's what Jacob was referred to as. He grasped his brother by the heel. And in his man, he, manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The context of Hosea 12 is he's using the person of Israel, Jacob, as a comparison to the current nation of Israel saying, that guy is better than you. You do not live up to your namesake. But the person he's referring to, we see there's also a messy relationship. And if you've read this story, this trickster, that's sort of grasped by the heel man, he's, he's wrestling with his brother, he's wrestling with his uncle, he's striving with the Lord, and it kind of culminates in this weird wrestling match scene, literal wrestling match, where an angel, maybe the angel of the Lord, comes to him in the night before he goes back where he's afraid his brother's going to kill him, and they wrestle, and Jacob won't let him go until he tells him, gives him a blessing, and then his hip's put out of place. It's a weird story. Right, like exactly what's happening in that story, the same as I've been saying for Hosea, like what exactly happens, like I'm not totally sure. It's weird. It's messy. It's confusing. And it's exactly the way God has related to his people all along. To this broken, unfaithful, difficult man who doesn't get it all together after that scene either, God chooses to continue in that relationship, to stick with him through the mess. Just as he sticks with his people through so many messes over and over again, they're unfaithful. Over and over again, he pursues them. And in this story, again, he's saying, this is it. This is the end. I will be no mercy except that after this, I will bring you back. I promise we will make it through this. This isn't just a one-off story of something that happened centuries ago. This is who our God is. This is how he relates to his people. And we know it's how he's related to us ultimately because that's how he relates to us in Christ. He has stepped so far into our mess that he became one of us. 
he identifies with us, even to the point of taking on pain and difficulty and death in our place. So when you read Hosea on Tuesday morning and you have questions about how God feels about you, about is God going to stick with me despite how I've been living, despite where I am, despite the mess in my life, despite maybe I don't know how I feel about him. Maybe you're going through real difficult situations, marital difficulties, other relational difficulties, doubts, struggles, sins, things that feel like they've disqualified you for whatever reason. This is who you relate to. This is your God. He sticks with his people in messy situations. And that doesn't mean that he overlooks them. It doesn't mean that there's not punishment or difficulty or that he chooses to ignore them and just love you despite all of that. There's real judgment. There's real difficulty. There's, real, there's reality to these circumstances. But the final note for his people always, we will make it through this. We will be restored. We will be reconciled. That is the picture of Hosea. That's what carries through this book. And we're going to see in the coming weeks, next week we're going to look more in depth at at the judgment. And there's a lot of judgment, a lot of accusation in the book of Hosea. And we're going to dig into more of what is it that God is calling out here. But then the final weeks we're going to look, this book ends again. There's a reference in 11 and a final reference in the last chapter, Hosea 14. The final note, as the very beginning note was, God will restore his people. We will make it through this. He promises. Hope you'll come back, um, continue reading. Next week, we're going to read, if you want to read ahead, we're going to read Hosea 4 all the way through chapter 10. Um, So if you want to read those, we'll be discussing those next week. Hope you'll be back.